Welcome to the Wrong Kind of Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Martin, and today we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. So we're finishing up chapter five and going all the way through chapter six. But before we jump in, I wanted to make sure to talk about some of the other episodes that you don't want to miss. So if you haven't heard my interview, uh, it was more of a, a good chat with friend with with Tori Slaughter from Our Given Purpose. Go check that out. It aired last Wednesday, so December 23rd. It was kind of a... Um, you know, nothing off the table kind of talk. So we t- we spent time reflecting on 2020, looking forward to 2021, and we shared some of our favorite memories and traditions that, you know, are part of the Christmas season for us. So go check it out. Uh, I also had the distinct honor of being included in a project orchestrated and produced by Sharon Wilharm, who is the host of All God's Women podcast. So she pulled several of us women podcasters together to share how we as women of faith today connect with the women of Christmas from Jesus's life. It aired on December 21st here on Wrong Kind of Christian Podcast. So if you haven't heard it, go check it out. It's also a really great place to find other podcasts by Christian women. So go listen. Okay, everyone. I left us off last time telling us that the Hebrew Christians were about to be in for a bit of a tongue lashing. So are you ready? Let's dive in. The author begins with a little well-placed, kind of well-meaning snark. So verses 11 through 14 say, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. There it is. He's calling them out, you know. He says, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who just wasn't getting it? You know what I mean? Like someone who wasn't following along with the story. I kind of imagine that this must have been how the writer felt in this moment. Like he so loves Jesus that he wants to teach these Hebrew Christians all that he knows, but they're not ready for it. In fact, he tells them they're not even trying to understand. Another version I read translates it this way. Since you have become dull of hearing. So the problem isn't their hearing, of course, but like a lot of biblical matters, it's a hard issue. So I don't know why, but this this verse always brings Alice in Wonderland to my mind. So it's not in the original story, but I can hear Johnny Depp in my head as Mad Hatter saying to Alice, you're not the same as you were before. You were much more muchier. You've lost your muchness. The Hebrew Christians here had lost their muchness. They were just going along with their day-to-days, not ever growing, not ever moving forward. So the writer says, I have so much more I'd like to share with you, but you just won't get it yet. So I'll wait. Can you hear him saying that? So I'll wait. How many times in this study have we said, the writer is warning them? Hebrews is a book full of warnings. So he's telling them, you're not even trying to understand, which is very indicative of a major spiritual problem. 
if someone isn't even trying to understand, what does that look like? They're likely not listening, possibly not even trying to look like they're listening. They've given up, right? They've given up on it. And if you're unwilling to hear the word of God, then you're probably well on your way to already departing from God. And and that, my friends, that's unbelief. So that is what we started off with in chapter four in our last study time. The writer is constantly warning them about their unbelief. And then he chastises them a bit. You should be teachers by now. You should be out making disciples, leading others to Christ. Yet you're still needing me to spoon feed you the basics. Because you haven't exercised your spiritual muscles, you don't have an understanding of righteousness. And you're unable to tell the difference between good and evil. Like that's a big sign of Christianity, right? Of Christian maturity anyway. When we exercise our muscles, they get stronger, right? When we exercise our senses, they get stronger. The more you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit's leading, the more you are able to distinguish even his subtle nudges. But you have to use your muscles. How many of you have heard of the band Corn? Not a Christian band, I'll admit, but they do have a couple of Christian members. And Brian Head Welch is one of those. Also has another Christian band called Love and Death. Awesome band getting ready to release an album in January, I think. Anyway, so Head has a couple of books out, uh, Save Me From Myself and Eyes Wide Open, I think is the second one. He talks in those books about how when he became a Christian, he had to uh, open himself up to the nudges from the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it was kind of an overwhelming experience for him. And he he talks about how people who are open to hearing God talk to them and are open to listening for the Holy Spirit to kind of nudge you along, that the more you open yourself up to that, the more that you'll be able to see it, to understand it, you know? So it's exactly what we're talking about here. We have to exercise those senses. We have to let ourselves be open to the Holy Spirit's leading and open to hearing God speak to us because if we're closed off from it, then guess what? Even if God's trying to talk to us, we won't hear him. So, you know, in the end, it all kind of comes down to the fact that like, just like I can't watch someone lift weights and expect my arms to get stronger, that I have to put in the work to become mature in Christ. The other kind of seems to have a moment of realization, like he just can't keep repeating the same things over and over to these Hebrew Christians. They know the basics. So even if they've chosen not to move beyond them, they know them. So he's going to move on and he's kind of just trusting them to follow along. So chapter six starts off with my favorite word, right? Therefore, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that led to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. <laughs> Can't you just hear it in his voice? And God permitting, we will do so. Like when we're struggling to do something and someone asks like, you know, well, are you going to move forward with that? Or, you know, is it actually going to happen? We say, well, God willing. I think it's also fascinating the the list of basic instructions that the author includes here. So if we look at them closely, would you say that they more closely resemble Jewish teachings and practices? Or do we see a specific Christian influence here? To me, it looks like, you know, and remember from our first chapter discussion, these are Hebrew Christians who were tempted to go back to what was familiar. They were not only like displaying immaturity as Christians, but they were allowing themselves to even slide back into some of that comfort of tradition, right? The familiar. And the author here seems to be trying to make a connection with them in their familiar. So he's trying to meet them where they are, reminding them that these are the basics. 
and Christianity stems from Judaism. Since Christ came to fulfill the Jewish law, we need to move from what we know of the law into the promises that Jesus left us. We need to move into faith. It's somewhat ironic to me that we're here talking about how we need to move into this area of real authentic faith. And then we hit one of the like the most denominationally controversial topics in the Bible. You know, a few weeks ago, I, I published an article on ronkennachristian.com about being a submissive wife. And I thought that one kind of got a lot of traction because, you know, some people don't like to talk about it. This one is likely bigger than that. So some people um, call it a question of like once saved, always saved. And before we move on, I just want to be clear that I'm not coming at these verses with any kind of a denominational lens. You know, I want to read it and understand it as a child of God and a student of God who is, you know, diligently working to study his word and apply it to my life. So, so let's take a look. Verses four through six in chapter six, verses four through six. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Well, the author doesn't really seem to mince any words there. The very beginning here says, it is impossible. So while I'm adding emphasis with my voice, it's because the word impossible is in a position of emphasis, you know? It's not just meaning that it's going to be difficult. It doesn't say it's going to be really hard to come back from that, you know? That's not what he's saying. He, it literally means it's not possible. There are just a few other places in the book of Hebrews that the writer uses the same word for impossible. Chapter 6, verse 18 says, it's impossible for God to lie. Okay, well, I don't want to think of that as it's difficult for God to lie. No, it's impossible. He can't. Chapter 10, verse 4 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Chapter 11, verse 6 says, it is impossible to please God without faith. Not that it's hard. You know, it's going to be a really difficult process. That's not what it says. It's impossible. You can't do it. And neither is it that those who experience these amazing spiritual experiences but have fallen away to come back to repentance. So the author tells all of these amazing spiritual experiences. He lists them out, you know. He tells of people who have been enlightened with a new light shining on their minds and their spirits, allowing for understanding and insight into what he's saying. He's talking about tasting the heavenly gift, a real experience like repentance and salvation. He's talking about sharing in the Holy Spirit, which means more to have a fellowship with the Holy Spirit, kind of that give and take, you know, a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about people who have witnessed and experienced the goodness of the word of God and have realized that its goodness was working in them. And they've experienced the supernatural power of God himself. And so then here comes the problem. If someone has experienced these things and then falls away, it is impossible for them to return to repentance. That's what it says. Impossible to return to repentance. So even though I, I think it pretty clearly states that there are people who experience these things and then fall away. The question out there is, well, it's not really just a question. It's kind of a huge debate about whether these people were ever really saved to begin with. So, you know, world-renowned Bible scholars and commentators all have opinions on this. And many of them, you know, shockingly don't agree with each other. So each side kind of has its fair points. On the one hand, biblically speaking, we know that people can have crazy supernatural spiritual experiences and not be saved. Like Jesus even tells us about this in Matthew chapter seven. He says, many will call out to him and 
um, you know, even perform miracles in his name, but only those who do the will of the father will be saved. Gosh, that's a scary thought, right? I mean, eye opening, but scary. Like I can't just be going along doing whatever it is that I want to do. You know, whatever I think God needs me to do down here, I have to open myself up to truly hearing and understanding the spirit moving in my life, guiding and directing my steps, my path. And we have to be in tune with God's will. Please don't let that frighten you like too much, like that, you know, that you can't ever get there. That's not what it's saying either. You know, remember those like those spiritual nudges we were talked about earlier. If we open ourselves up to truly hearing and understanding the spirit moving in our lives, then I think we're more likely to be following along the path of God's will. We know that people can be religious, and I use that like I'm in quotes here, so religious, and not be saved. Like the Pharisees we read about in the New Testament, those are good examples of that. Like they evangelized, they prayed, like rather impressively, mind you, you know, they observed religious traditions and they fasted on a regular basis. Yet even still, Jesus called them sons of hell. So, you know, the question's really about the heart. It's a heart issue. Isn't that what we've said like time and time again? It's all a heart issue. And so here's the question. Were they ever really saved or was it all just a show? And the other side of the coin is a very human response to this question. We who have experienced these things don't really understand how someone could share these experiences and then later fall away. Because I mean, they're pretty impressive experiences, you know? This verse seems to say that it does happen. And we even have a good example of that in the Bible of Demas. So um, we see that like Demas, he did good works in the New Testament. We read about him like working alongside Paul and uh, you know, contributing to to the furthering of the kingdom. But in Second uh, Timothy chapter four, Paul condemns him. He says that uh, Demas has loved the world so much that he abandoned him and went to Thessalonica. So, you know, yeah, it's possible to to be showing these these experiences, you know, showing that you are religious and and then not really having that real experience. In my mind, I tie this verse to Mark 4 and the parable of the sower. So Jesus warned them that, you know, all who heard would not necessarily respond the same way. And it seems like maybe this verse is really talking about those whose seed was sown in the rocky places. Like they experience it with joy and they're like, really, they're all in and they're really excited about it, but they have very little root, you know, nothing to ground them, nothing to hold them in. And so they they don't hang around very long. This next little bit talks about the impossibility of returning to repentance. And I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. So I spent some time reading commentaries and opinions of those who have spent significantly much more time than I have grappling with this text. And guess what I came up with? They don't really agree or, or necessarily know the answer to this either. So, you know, I'll share their opinions with you anyway, and maybe it'll help you work through your own thoughts on it. Some thought that this meant that there was absolutely no possibility for restoration if someone quote unquote, sinned significantly after baptism. I am not sure what they would deem a significant sin, but but that's one opinion. Another opinion is that this was more of like a hypothetical warning that the writer was just trying to like motivate them with the threat of hell. And guys, I think this is the most dangerous theory out there and 100% wrong. 
in knowing that God can't lie. I mean, Hebrews chapter six tells us that, right? God can't lie. And the entirety of the Bible is God breathed. I cannot make this theory make sense in any way for me. So I'm just leaving it where it is. So then there are some people who think that this verse deals only with a reward in heaven, not necessarily salvation itself. So um, because it says that they can't return to repentance, not necessarily that they've lost their salvation explicitly, then I found a theory that I think works best for me and my understanding of the word. And I, I, I've probably said this a few times before, but I try to study the Bible with the understanding that context is key. So when this theory kind of pointed me back to Hebrews 6, I really appreciated the context that they gave me. We always have to remember who the author was originally speaking to. These are Hebrew Christians who were who were tempted to return to Judaism. So in that light, this verse would just be another warning for them to not return to their former traditions and beliefs. If they were to return to what is familiar, all the religious repentance in the world will do them absolutely no good because it would also mean that they would likely return to animal sacrifices as their way of of atoning for sin. And that would mean that they're denying the work of Jesus on the cross. That would be hard to come back from. And that makes sense to me. So as I will always do, I want to encourage you to like go dig in on your own, you know, read the text, read commentaries, use the spiritual muscles God gave you to help you make sense of it all. The writer follows up this warning with an example that we can all understand, I think. Verses seven through eight say, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will burn. It's like he's saying, you've been blessed. Now you must be fruitful. And it reminds me of uh, Matthew chapter seven, when we're told that we will know them by their fruits. You know, I kind of resonate that in my mind every time I am listening to a speaker or I'm reading a book and trying to figure out if this person's really like on par with what God is saying, you know, you will know them by their fruits. Do their fruits, do their actions say that they belong to Christ? Hebrews 6 warns us that if they're not, or if they're bearing thorns and thistles, then they will be cursed. The Hebrew author, you know, I'm kind of, I'm getting really tired of calling him the Hebrew author, the Hebrew author. I wish I had a name to attach to it instead. But anyway, the Hebrew author seems to have a moment of clarity in the way that he has been speaking to them. So like maybe he's realized that he's been a little bit harsh on them. Verses nine through 12. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. I love how he encourages them. Like he's just laid it all out there for them, you know, calling them all out on their potential unbelief and their temptation to return to Judaism. But he follows it up with words to spur them on a little bit. His own way of saying like, you've got this, you know, you can do this. Look what you've already done. God won't forget that. We don't want you to forget it either. Keep going, you know, keep going. Don't we all sometimes need encouragement like that? 
Like sometimes we feel like God isn't seeing us, you know, but that isn't true. It can't be true because that would be outside of his nature. I wonder if maybe sometimes we feel this way because we're relying on like human acknowledgement, like we need human applause and, and you know, a pat on the back from our, our fellow people on here on earth to help get us through and convince us that we're doing the right thing. And when it doesn't come, we get discouraged and we wonder, why keep going? Why do I keep trying to do this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God hasn't forgotten and God has noticed. He has noticed. And if you're moving in line with his will, he wants you to keep going. Keep going. Imitate those who persevered. Be like Abraham. Abraham showed faith in believing God's promises, and he also showed patience in waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. So like, I mean, I say that, and it wasn't like he didn't have perfect faith, and he certainly wasn't perfectly patient, but it was there all the same, right? Verse 13 through 18 says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Have you ever noticed that when the time comes to like wait on God's promises, that there seems to be like a season of attack first? One translation I've read stated Abraham's waiting period like this. He patiently endured, endured. When I hear that word, I like, I know it's not going to be pleasant, you know, like you don't endure things that you love. You endure difficulties and challenges, attacks. Why? Because Satan wants you to doubt. He wants you to doubt God and he wants you to doubt God's promises. And he wants you to doubt your own worthiness of, you know, being worthy of God's promises. And this is when we must have faith because God will follow through. Maybe not always in the way that we expect him to. Maybe not always in the way that we think we want him to, but he is faithful to his promises. Let's finish up. We're almost done here with verses 19 through 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What a great analogy in light of what we've just talked about. I've read one author who pointed out that we don't, you know, we don't need an anchor in calm waters. Like the rougher the weather, the more important your anchor. And I know we talked about Jesus being our GHP, our great high priest in our last study session, but it's reinforced here. So Jesus is our great high priest because he goes into the inner sanctuary as our forerunner, meaning he's going into the very presence of God ahead of us and on our behalves. He's already there mediating for us. Thank goodness, right? But don't miss this. If Jesus is the forerunner, who is the afterrunner? We are. I am. You are. We have to follow his path, running after him. So many times we see, you know, we, we see this Christian journey as a race in the Bible. And I think it's important to note here that it's a marathon. It's, it's not a sprint. So run the race, friends. Run the race following Jesus's path. 
starting in January, so like next week, wow, that's that's crazy, right? Starting in January, I'll be um, releasing a Bible study episode every week instead of every other week. And usually there'll also be an interview or another episode aired as well during the same week. So that means next week we'll get to talk about the mysterious Melchizedek. And if all goes well and as planned, I'll be chatting with someone from the I Am Second team. So Doug Bender, who has a new book coming out this month, actually in like two weeks, is called um, called I Found Love. He's going to call into the show and we'll talk about I Am Second and his book, I Found Love. Are you familiar with the I Am Second movement? It's a great place to connect with others who've not lived perfect lives, but are putting it all out there for God's glory. So go check them out on social media and I'll tell you more about them hopefully next week. Until then, friends, I hope you all have safe, fun, memorable New Year's Eve celebrations. Happy New Year, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.